0: The incidence of symptoms was still high in both trials, but the severity of those symptoms was significantly reduced on a low FODMAP diet. But then we actually found that um, a low FODMAP diet, we actually had more substantial injury to the lining of our gut compared to on a high FODMAP diet.
1: Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, fellow sports dietitian who does all that stuff as well, Steph Gaskell. (laughs) How are things with you, Steph? You've moved house. How are you settling in?
0: Yeah, moved house. Um, Yeah, settling in great, like, but... I tell you what, I think I've moved, I think I was telling you I've moved about five times in the last three years. (laughs) Um, So, with each of those, thankfully, I've done, you know, some good clean outs. But it's bloody tiring when you're doing that on top of your work. Um, But, yeah, really, really happy with where we've moved. So, loving the new pad and closer to trails and uh yeah all all is happy here how about you
1: yeah just uh lockdown and kids and work and yeah it doesn't really change at the moment unfortunately we've got our path back to schools opening but it's still you know over a month away or about a month away Mm. and then part-time so um yeah looking forward to when that happens but still a little while away unfortunately but uh yeah busy busy week with uh marking assignments and bits and pieces over the last week or so with the uni. So looking forward to their mm. mid-semester breaks coming up in an, uh, in a week's time. So looking forward to that and a bit of bit of downtime from a teaching perspective, which is good. So obviously mm. we had the, the week off last week, Steph, while you were moving house and I was busy doing marking like a madman while kids were running around and homeschooling. So uh, <laughs> yeah, back into it today.
0: Yeah, 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 awesome. Mm.
1: All right, well here on The Long Munch we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of stuff that people are often debating when they're out training or afterwards at the coffee shop Uh, and we sort of break those questions down and invite a guest expert or um, an athlete to add their perspective in our Part A's and and Part B episodes respectively. Um, Now today, Steph, it is episode 21A and our topic for today is... What are FODMAPs and why is it relevant to exercise? So, our guest speaker for today is Steph Gaskell.
0: <laughs> How'd you get her, Alan? Oh, oh, bloody hell, you know. must be good.
1: Yeah, scraping the bottom of the barrel these days with the oh. guest. <laughs> oh. No, just kidding. Harsh. Just kidding. <laughs> um, yes, now obviously this is a, an area of expertise for you. You've worked in FODMAPs for a long time and we'll, we'll get into that shortly in terms of um, sort of the work you've done both in terms of with athletes, but also in in general sort of day-to-day nutrition and health as well. Um, And so, yeah, we'll get into, um, I guess, what FODMAPs are and and why we're talking about that, and and I guess why it's a question that that athletes might ask. Uh, But before we do that, if anyone else has a question that they'd like answered on the podcast, you can um, contact us via social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, hear f- some feedback about the, the podcast, what you're enjoying, what you're not enjoying, what you want more of, less of, or as I said, if you've got a specific question you've got answered. We've had a couple that have sort of been waiting in the wings for a little while now. We've finally got our people lined up to, to record them finally now, um, Tokyo is in the rearview mirror. So a couple of guest experts that we thought were really well placed to answer this question, but they were just so flat out in the lead up to the Olympics. So uh, looking forward to getting into a couple of those topics and and answering those questions that people had sent in to us um, quite a few months ago now, which would be great. But before we do that, Steph, as we like to do in our A episodes, These are the expert episodes where we get into the the nitty-gritties of the question. And usually when we do that, um, one or or sometimes both of us get a little bit fired up because there's something about that question that just, you know, picks away at us because of interactions that we've had with people, things we've seen on social media uh, or, or elsewhere. And today it's something that's getting under your skin and it's relating to FODMAPs. What's on your mind?
0: What's on my mind, Alan? I've got to got to make sure that I'm like all fired up for this one because I'm contesting against yours from from last time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what fires me up is when people just think that they need to and should go on a low fodmap diet uh, because that's going to get rid of the gut symptoms that they're experiencing during exercise. Um, and, you know, they've just heard it along the grapevine. Um, And they they implement a low FODMAP diet. They don't really have all that great knowledge on what's involved. Um, They cut out a whole heap of foods um, and they don't even know if it's really for them. Um, And then they may do it uh, and they may not actually get any change in their symptoms. So I guess my um, bugbear there is that um, people kind of doing too much guesswork um, and doing too much self-diagnosis and that can be not necessarily the best for them, particularly if they're cutting out a whole heap of foods that can potentially actually be really good for them and their gut health. And there's a whole heap of reasons which we've covered before in terms of what could actually trigger gut symptoms. Um, So I think, you know, we need to be careful uh, when we go on particular diets that we actually understand the reasons for it and then understand what could happen if we take away foods and then what we can replace. Um, So that's a little bit of my... Uh, annoyance. I guess not really sound all that annoyed compared to what you probably did last week but um, yeah I think we just need to be careful before we jump on to things.
1: So when people go to Dr Google and they google FODMAP diet exercise and they come up with Gaskell et al and then they read that they're uh, yes. reading a bit too much into it potentially.
0: Yeah, they can, you know, and that's that can often be the thing as well. They might just read a conclusion and they haven't actually read, you know, the actual study details. Um, and then they may just misinterpret certain things as well. Um, so, yeah, it's really important to have the understanding. And I think the other thing as well is... Um, Understanding what that protocol was too, you know, we weren't putting someone on a low fodmap diet for weeks on end, um, as you'll see when we have this chat how long it was for. And then the other important thing is, you know, we're dietitians, so we're also making sure we're replacing the foods with um, with important substitutes, um, so still getting in the nutrition that we need to.
1: Yep, absolutely. all right you're looking calm enough we might actually get more fired up as the episode goes on who knows we'll see how we go but yes uh so our topic as we said is what are FODMAPs and why is it relevant to uh to exercise i think we mentioned this at the end of our last episode uh, the reason that this came up is really it's sort of a a continuation on of, of episode 7a Uh, where we talked about you know why do I get gut issues during exercise and we talked about FODMAPs being one of those strategies that can be used in some situations as you said you don't want to over generalize it and just say it's the solution to everything. Um, We also talked a little bit about it uh, when we chatted with Karen Hill uh, episode 9b I think it was off the top of my head uh, around carbohydrate loading and carbohydrate loading with low FODMAP foods as well. Uh, And so we'll bring, I guess, those two sort of concepts together um, when we start to get into into this one. So let's talk FODMAPs with you, Steph. Um, Now you've developed quite the expertise in this particular area. So I guess the first question is, you know, where did that kind of come from? Where did that all start for you in terms of your knowledge and interest around FODMAPs?
0: Mm, yeah. Um, so it basically started, I guess, for me in terms of being di- diagnosed myself with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and then I sort of found the advice that I was getting from, you know, health professionals um, in terms of health advice and dietary advice to be quite frustrating. You know, the type of advice that I'd get would be, I'll oh, increase your dietary fibre intake. Um, Try Buscopan. go to the chemist and get some IBS, you know, medication. Uh, and that, that type of advice wasn't helpful to me. It didn't seem to relieve my symptoms. Um, and then this kind of coincided about the same time I was actually, I was studying dietetics. Um, and one of my research projects was actually looking at something different. It was looking at um, gluten-free diets in Celiac disease, um, but that then led me to researchers at Monash University, um, and they uh, seemed to to um, be kind of on top of those research areas in terms of you know dietary um, uh, research in in um, IBS and then also in celiac disease. Um, so I started reading more and more of their work, and then. Um, I finished the the degree and then I went off to Wyala because I got a scholarship there and um, was doing you know community and clinical work and again I was just seeing a lot of people for um, that had irritable bowel syndrome and I was then giving what I thought was this really shitty <laughs> advice um, and I was just frustrated by it um, and I thought there's there's definitely more that I can do. Um, and so that's when then I reached out to the team at Monash University and just asked if I could do some work experience. Um, thankfully, I was able to um, go up to Melbourne and, and do some work experience. And I guess, long story short, while I was there, I was offered to to, um, to take up work over there. So that kind of led to, I guess, the career i have now in, um, because I was able to learn from who I would say are world leaders in in that particular area of um, just in gastrointestinal health um, and I was able to work with some really you know leading um, researchers in that field and, and gastroenterologists.
1: so mm. yeah And so yeah. just to be clear that that's not the nutrition department at Monash uni where we both work now. this is the Department of gastroenterology um, part of yes. Monash uni but a different part of, of Monash uni.
0: Yeah, yep, exactly. Yep. I used to be in um, Box Hill, actually. And now that group are, are in Alfred, uh, Alfred, um, Alfred Hospital. Uh, Center there.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, okay. And so for those who've, who've, who are sitting there going FODMAP, what's a FODMAP? What is that actually? Mm. Um, what mm. is it? Is it a little critter that runs around inside your gut or something yeah. else?
0: <laughs> Seems like it. Um, yeah, a little gremlin. So, <laughs> so FODMAPs, I guess it's an acronym because it stands for a really long kind of scary name, um, but basically it it stands for fermentable oligodimonosaccharides and polyols, and basically all they are are types of um, poorly or, or slowly absorbed um, fermentable carbohydrates uh, that can trigger Gastrointestinal symptoms in susceptible people. So, basically, what can happen is we may not absorb them all that well. Um, They can typically end up in our large intestine where we naturally have gut bacteria. That's very normal, that's where we want gut bacteria. Um, But what happens is the bacteria they like to feed on sugars. Um, FODMAPs are, are sugars, they're carbohydrates, and so bacteria will feed and munch on them, break them down, and produce gas and byproducts, and, and that is what can then lead to um, gut symptoms like um, uh, we can get stomach pain, we can get stomach bloating, discomfort, we can get um, you know, loose bowels, we can even get constipation, um, so we can get a range of upper and and lower gut symptoms.
1: Yep, okay. Mm. And um, so it sounds like, um, you know, from those early days when you were um, doing that work experience over there, that that low FODMAP diet traditionally was designed more for the treatment of IBS rather than for anything to do with athletes.
0: Exactly right, yeah, it was. It was, yeah, at that time, mainly for people with irritable bowel syndrome, um, there were a lot of, we were getting a lot of people come to the clinic and gastroenterologists were that um, they thought they needed to follow a a gluten-free diet. They thought they had gluten intolerance. Um, But yeah, that's when that kind of led further into the research and it it, um, seemed to be more so from from FODMAPs. Um, So yeah, whereas now as well, it's kind of progressed in terms of in the general population, Um, A a FODMAP diet can also be um, beneficial for people that have uh, an IBS subtype um, or associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So people that have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis may also have some irritable bowel symptoms as well. Um, So it could be beneficial for them. But again, it's important to know are they having an increase in their symptoms just due to it not being controlled very well or is diet also playing a role for them? Um, And now more recently also being found to be effective in um, individuals that may have endometriosis. Um, So, yeah, it's been found to be really effective for, for individuals with that too.
1: Yeah. And the team at Monash, did they actually invent that acronym?
0: Yeah, the Monash team did. Like there was, you know, FODMAPs. Um, if you look at some of those foods, you know, it's like f- um, foods that have more fructose than glucose. It's foods that are high in lactose, just as examples. Um, and and they were um, all known and and looked at in research, you know, long time ago. Um, but it wasn't really ever collectively put together and seen to to find out, you know, okay, well, if we actually remove these um, together in combination, um, can we get, you know, a, a better symptom um, response? And then there was also no real clear dietary advice about, like, do we need to remove all fructose from our diet? Because that's that's impossible. Um, and what level do we need to go to?
1: Mm. Yeah, okay. So you touched on a couple of things there. Um, and I guess you've got that big acronym, so it sounds like it covers a whole range of different things. So, mm-hmm. I just, I guess, for the people who are sort of trying to visualize what that actually looks like, what sort of things, I guess, are either excluded or included when we think about a low FODMAP diet generally? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, FODMAPs are they're basically found in all types of foods. So, it's not, you know, um, healthy food versus bad food. Um, but um, there are certain you know, fruits and vegetables that, that are kind of higher in FODMAPs. So if we kind of break it down and we look at um, the, like what we say is the, um, let's go to the disaccharide part first. If we look at um, lactose, it's, it's looking at avoiding foods that are high in lactose and that's mainly milk and yogurt. Um, and in some instances, maybe maybe certain cheeses, but generally cheese is usually low in lactose, so it's not usually enough to trigger symptoms. Ice cream if we have too much of that, which I definitely do. Um, and then we look at you know fructose in excess of glucose. So again that's certain foods. So there can be examples um, like honey, it can be apples, pears, um, And then if we look at things like, oligosaccharides that's things like what we call fructans and goss that's found in um, certain legumes and lentils it's also found in um, wheat rye and barley in large amounts so we don't need to avoid all forms of wheat and it's not a gluten-free diet which a lot of people get confused about And is Um, that that
1: why you you saying before that, you know, a lot of people thought that they were sort of gluten sensitive and that was where some of that research was happening sort of just prior to that sort of FODMAPs term being coined. Is that why? Because there's some overlap between, I guess, gluten free foods and low FODMAP foods. It's not exactly the same, but there's enough overlap there that if people quote unquote avoid gluten or have a lower gluten diet, they often get relief. But it's actually because of the FODMAPs, not the gluten component.
0: Exactly right. Yeah. And that's um, where some people like they'd find, you know, this sort of um, s- somewhat symptom relief, but often they wouldn't find a complete relief of their symptoms. Um, and then we found like down the track that, oh, okay, when we looked more at FODMAPs and actually excluding all of them, um, then we got the the best response. Mm. But I mean, still now, like you, you'd say FODMAPs to people when it's like some people know about it, but other people are like, nah, what's that? Whereas if you say gluten, you know, um, people kind of are more familiar with that. So it, it's just the thing that people are more familiar with. And so they just automatically, if they get gut symptoms now, they just automatically think it's gluten. I'll just take that out. Mm. Um, so yeah, common misconception.
1: Yeah, And gluten, uh, for those who are not aware is a type of protein that's found in things like wheat Uh, whereas the FODMAPs as you said before is the sort of the starch or sugar component from foods. So yes it can be the same food but it's a different part of the same food.
0: Exactly Um, and anyone that needs to follow a gluten-free diet I mean it's typically that they have celiac disease and it's because gluten is doing damage to the small intestine whereas people that need to follow a, a low FODMAP diet um, the important thing to know there is we don't we haven't seen any real damage as such that, that um, FODMAPs do, um, and it's to help manage the symptoms. Yep. Um, so, yeah, very different. So it
1: doesn't have to be as strict, essentially.
0: Exactly, yeah. Mm. And, yeah, like we don't need to go to the lengths of going and buying all gluten-free foods and a bit of wheat in products like breadcrumbs and um certain tolerance level um whereas with gluten we need to take it all out if we have celiac disease
1: yeah cool um okay and so so i interrupted you there you, you sort of talked about the lactose you talked about the, the fructose and the oligosaccharides in terms of the the legumes and lentils and things like that and then the yep. wheat um, and those sorts of products do you want to finish those
0: finish those yeah the other one that's really common and people probably hate me for more times than 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 kind of limiting the wheat side of it is onion Um, onion can be a a significant trigger Um, and garlic not as significant but it it can be a trigger so it's certain amounts of of garlic Um, and then there's also what we call polyols so things like sorbitol and and mannitol and xylitol Um, And they're commonly found in stone fruits, apples, pears, but also chewing gum, which a lot of us can, you know, can be caught out um, chewing some extra. Um, And they actually, they've got significant amounts in in those. Um, And then particularly for athletes um, or not even athletes, people that are following some weight loss diets, if they're consuming, you know, diet bars or particular protein bars or low calorie um foods or lollies they'll nearly almost guarantee that they'll be high in some of those FODMAPs.
1: Mm. So so they're used as essentially like a more natural alternative to artificial sweetener in some products.
0: Exactly yep yep. yep. Cool Yep.
1: okay and so you know we talked about um I guess the, the low FODMAP diet originally being kind of devised for use in people with irritable bowel syndrome so you know whether they do exercise or not is, is kind of irrelevant in, in that case. Um, but more recently I guess there's been a, a, a surge in interest in, in low FODMAP diets specifically for uh, you know, athletes, whether it's runners, cyclists, triathletes um, in terms of day-to-day gut symptoms and as we'll talk to shortly you know, during exercise as well. Um, so for, for people who might be runners, cyclists, triathletes who have day-to-day gut symptoms would a low FODMAP diet still be a useful approach for them?
0: Yep. Um, so if they've got um, day-to-day symptoms, um, you're saying? Yeah, so not right? necessarily yeah.
1: associated with exercise, just on a day-to-day yep. basis, they're getting sort of gut symptoms.
0: Symptoms, yeah. So it potentially can, um, but as always, we always want to, you know, kind of investigate that further and um, I'd always um, find out medical history from from them um and um yeah find out whether it may actually be worth them checking in with their doctor first and just getting certain medical conditions ruled out for example things like celiac disease inflammatory bowel disease and some symptoms can be um, also common to ovarian cancer as well Um, and so you just want to be really, really careful with that stuff, um, and it and it's super easy generally to go see your doctor and and get those things checked. Um, it can be as simple as a as a blood test, um, and then you know if there's certain things that kind of stand out to them, then they'll go deeper. Um, but it's it's worthwhile doing that so that we know what we're actually dealing with, because obviously if we've got Um, celiac disease or IBD um, the treatment is is very different and it can actually be doing a lot more harm on our body Um, so I definitely get those things checked first and then once I'm happy with that being rolled out and they've got you know these symptoms which may be either kind of classified as either irritable bowel syndrome or maybe just functional gastrointestinal symptoms so it means basically that They've ruled out any kind of abnormal pathology, um, and it's more um, a functional part of of, of symptoms. Um, so, and people can get frustrated with that. They think, "Oh, I've gone to see the doctor. They don't know what's wrong with me. They've just given me this condition." Like you know, they give everyone it's IBS, and it's like, actually, no. They've they usually have done a good a good check. Um, And um, unfortunately, IBS is really common um, and it it makes up, I think, majority of gastroenterologists' visits, actually.
1: Mm. And it's one of those things that doesn't turn up when you do any kind of assessment either, does it? In terms of, you know, often one of the first things that the gastroenterologist will do is let's do a gastroscope, let's do a colonoscopy. And then they do them and there's nothing there. It's just normal. And so people are like, well, I've got all these problems. How can I be normal?
0: Yes, exactly, yep, yep. Um, But then, you know, if you actually look further into, you know, the research of of IBS, um, and they compare, you know, people that have IBS with healthy controls, they actually see differences in MRIs in their brain and stuff. Um, You know, a classic example of the study is where they basically put, not really nice, but they, injected you know they put balloons up the rectums of healthy controls and people with IBS and they found um, that the people with IBS they had much more activation in particular areas of their brain compared to the um, healthy controls and they also um, found um, discomfort um, and experienced symptoms a lot earlier than the healthy controls so there's definitely changes and difference in Insensitivity there, um, but they just won't find it in um, the typical bloods and things that they do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I guess if we think about, you know, we're possibly taking something out of the diet by having a low FODMAP diet. Now, obviously the, the FODMAPs, as you described, is kind of a bit of a motley crew of things that you're removing. It's not like you're not removing all dairy products, you're not removing all grain products or all fruit or anything like that. You're just removing parts of those food groups. But is there anything that, that maybe athletes need nutritionally that they'll be missing out on? With a low fodmap diet or possibly not necessarily completely missing out on but is anything they need to be careful about
0: mm, yeah definitely um if just if they, they don't have the knowledge on appropriate swaps so a, a real common one is carbohydrates right so if we talk about you know with a fodmap diet and we're limiting our intake of foods high in fructans then they may if they don't have much knowledge just think oh well i can't have bread or pasta you know, and all I can have is, I don't know, rice. But then they might think, oh, glutinous rice, I can't have that, Um, just because they don't have that understanding. So carbohydrate intake could be um, severely impacted on um, if they don't know what what they can replace. Um, And yeah, if they're taking out fruits and things, and then they're taking out, like if they just think, oh, I I can't have um, dairy, um, well, then that's important from a protein and calcium perspective. So, um, yeah, it, it, it could be um, quite, quite detrimental if, if they don't know how to replace things mm.
1: and sometimes you see people that go towards sort of almost a low carb high fat diet whether they realize it or not like whether that's a conscious mm. choice because of the things that they're removing if they do that too extreme or some people go to that sort of low carb high fat diet and go oh my god it solved all my gut issues i feel fantastic uh, and it's probably because they have removed the the fodmaps but it doesn't necessarily mean that they had to remove all the carbohydrate um, just the ones that were causing the problem
0: exactly and that's the danger and the danger is that they then may actually just take out more and more foods and they kind of think oh well i'm feeling good but then what can actually potentially happen is then they're potentially making their gut more sensitive and then when they try and reintroduce those foods their gut hasn't been used to them Um, and then it's a a lot more difficult to reintroduce um, those foods Um, And the other thing as well is it potentially can lead to some disordered type of eating. Um, Again, people might just get scared of the foods that they are eating and they're just not too sure, they get anxious about it. Um, So yeah, it can lead to not healthy habits.
1: Yep. And so someone might, you know, whether it's through a health professional or they might just go out and do it themselves, you know, go on a low FODMAP diet and they might get symptom relief of their kind of day to day gut symptoms, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, And they've removed all the different FODMAPs from their diet. And so there's quite a few things that they're potentially missing out on now. Some of them they might really um, be missing, some of them maybe not. Um, But do you need to remove all of the FODMAPs, all those different types to get the benefit?
0: Mm, Yeah. Good question. Um, again, it's it, it's um, and I had a consult with a client today in that particular area. Um, it's dependent on the level of symptom severity, basically. Um, the reason we look to remove FODMAPs if it does, you know, play a role in symptoms is um, because of that, it's it's triggering symptoms. It's not what causes people to have those symptoms. Um, so um, if they've got uh, symptoms that are impacting on their quality of life to a reasonable level, then what I would say is ideally, I would then take them out um, altogether because that's when we'll get our best symptom response. But in saying that, I'm not doing that forever. Um, I do that for a really short period of time and I'll typically do that for two to four weeks again because that's kind of where the research shows us. If I had them in a lab, I'd probably only need to do it for a few days because everything's much more controlled but we know out in the real world there can be other factors that will influence on things. Um, So I would typically do it for two to four weeks and then what I'm then doing is okay, assess symptom response, and then based on that, then we're doing a reintroduction phase and we're reintroducing um, FODMAPs, but we're doing it strategically um, and sort of a bit more one by one to work out, okay, well, what's the most significant trigger or triggers for you? And what is your tolerance level in terms of them? So even if I find out fructans, are a trigger of my symptoms, it may be that I can still have a certain amount of fructans in my diet, and then I'm just working out what level that is for me. In other people, if the level of symptoms is not that bad, and I can really easily see that there may be something in their diet that's just standing out and they're having a lot of, and I think, oh, hey, this could actually just be a really simple change where I don't need to take out all of their FODMAPs, Um, then I'll I'll very likely do that. So I'm also assessing that individual, what else is going on in their life and how difficult I think those changes will be for them and what impact that will have on them um, before I make the decision of of what intervention I'll do with them.
1: Yep. Cool. And like of all the different types of FODMAPs, do you find that some are are the more common culprits than others in terms of the ones that are actually triggering the symptoms versus the ones that they can probably tolerate more of?
0: Yeah, definitely. Like, um, Monash did some research into this um, a a while ago and um, um, I'm not sure if it's been updated, but um, basically what they saw was that um, foods high in fructans um, tended to be the the more significant dietary triggers for people at least with irritable bowel syndrome um so um and anecdotally i tend to find that um Mm. as well so that's Um, your
1: wheat and onions and things like that
0: exactly unfortunately it's some of the most painful ones and most common ones in our diet um but yeah they do tend to be um one of the most significant ones for triggering symptoms for people.
1: Is that specifically because of the type or the fact that we eat those generally in larger quantities? Like we don't have much honey, but we have a lot of bread in comparison to what we would have honey. Mm, yeah.
0: Um, good question. Um, I I I don't know. I don't know to be honest, like if if it's more just because of the, the type, like FODMAPs are all kind of absorbed differently and I know that fructans um, tend to be more of a trigger for symptoms than say goss and that's just Mm. because they can be more difficult to um, break down um, and all of the FODMAPs can be absorbed more slowly so it may be more due to the properties of the particular fructans but then at the same time we also have um, a significant amount of it more commonly in our diet just because it is in such a range of of foods that that we commonly have whereas the others are a bit uh generally in lower quantities
1: yeah cool yeah all right well let's think about FODMAPs specific to exercise now and i know you've previously done a lot of work helping people to sort of understand the fodmap content of common sports nutrition products I remember you wrote a book around that uh, quite a few years ago now, a little sort of guidebook of the sort of the FODMAP content of different sports nutrition products um, and helping people find kind of low FODMAP alternatives for things like sports drinks and gels and bars and that kind of thing. So that during exercise period, um, is that kind of where that sort of crossover of the concept of FODMAPs that was used for irritable bowel syndrome started to become relevant in the sports nutrition world?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what we tended to see um, and what I was seeing when I worked even just in more of the clinical side, I was still seeing, you know, um, people that were exercising or, or athletes um, and um, the symptoms that can be experienced by people during exercise are very, very much similar to the types of symptoms that people experience when they have irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so, you know, when we're out exercising, some common symptoms that we can get, stomach pain, bloating, a lot of, um, flatulence, um, and a real common one for runners are uh, the runner's trots. Um, so yeah, so the symptoms were very similar. Um, and so I guess the work then, or the interest then was, um, was then thinking oh well hey the the symptoms are kind of similar that happen in exercise we know that fodmap is found to be um you know really therapeutically effective for people with ibs um i wonder if it can be effective for for people that are exercising um and so there there's there was research into that dana lease um is um, sort of helped lead the way in in that particular area Um, and um, yeah looked at well yeah is there a role for FODMAPs um, in in individuals that are exercising Um, and you know is it gluten free that we need to do or or is it more so FODMAPs um, basically so that's kind of what what kind of started us looking into the area? There are a number of case studies, um, which Dana had a had an athlete that um, you know was complaining of gut symptoms, and when when she did um, a further look into their diet, she saw you know not only were they consuming a high carbohydrate diet, well that came in with also being high in fodmaps, um, and then what she did was then. Well, hey, let's reduce their fodmap intake, and and then um, had a look and saw if you know that change um, helped improve the the symptoms during exercise. Um, and then there was another case study on um, a female ultra endurance runner, um, and again looking at um, reducing their fodmap intake, leading into like a five to six day stage race and the impact that that had on their symptoms during exercise. Um, And basically those case studies found that there was an improvement in symptoms from following a low FODMAP diet. Um, And then therefore that kind of gave some, uh, you know, evidence to say, all right, well let's look into this further and let's now um, do some better controlled studies. So that then led into some single and double-blinded
1: studies. Mm, yep and so those early studies i guess were looking i mean they did look a little bit during exercise but primarily what they were looking at was the difference in symptoms sort of when the people weren't exercising so the Mm. people who were training every day uh, but looking i guess what their day-to-day symptoms are rather than specifically during exercise and so that that kind of early work and, and some of the stuff even maybe prior to the research that just people were doing in their practice and some of the stuff that you were doing about you know reducing the fodmap content in in drinks and gels and bars and stuff i mean that was even before any of this research was even done you know 10 10 or more years ago now um was the rationale behind that sort of looking at people who were getting day-to-day symptoms and trying to relieve their symptoms by reducing that load during exercise or was there more more to it than that
0: yeah yeah um I guess at least for me in my practice it was um they were they were maybe aware of symptoms on day to day but it wasn't really bothering them all that much and it wasn't until then they were getting to their exercise and um, the athletes that I was tending to work with were more so endurance and ultra-endurance athletes, um, and then the symptoms were starting to, you know, um, be much more significant um, and exercising, um, impacting on their exercise performance and their output. Um, so then for me, I was kind of like, well, hey, um, I know, you know, FODMAPs can trigger gut symptoms in our general pop. Um, and I knew also personally for myself, um, when I changed, you know, my diet in terms of FODMAPs, um, it not only impacted on my day to day, um, but it also helped, um, reduce the symptoms that I was experiencing during exercise. Um, so then I thought, well, Hey, it's, it's worth trialing. Um, and so at that time I was, I was doing a bit of both. I probably sort of see sometimes how just changing the day-to-day diet might then impact on their during exercise. So I may not necessarily have always changed what they were consuming during, um, but then just seeing if we just changed what they were having leading in, is that enough? Um, And then if we still got symptoms, then I'm starting to change what they're also having during, and then that's when... We started. I started looking more at the products and and finding that a lot of our sports nutrition products, particularly gels, um, were high in some of those fodmaps and particularly high in what we call fructose. Um, and as we know, there's a reason for that, and that's just because in endurance athletes, if they're trying to get over a certain amount of carbohydrate. Um, a higher amount then they actually need to have some of that fructose if they're trying to get generally more than 60 grams per hour of carbs and so that's the reason why you see a lot of sports nutrition companies you know having this fructose in
1: in their product. And I guess day to day, like if you think about how much fructose someone eat on a day to day basis, as you said, the main sources are going to be things like honey. It's not something you eat in big quantities on a day to day basis. You know, Mm. you might have a couple of teaspoons here or there, Uh, and then the other ones are you know some particularly types of fruits, apples, pears. Um, maybe mango to a certain extent as well. So again, they're things that you might have one or two of a day, but you're not going to have heaps of them as opposed to during exercise. If you're doing an Ironman, you might pop five or six gels and you know, a couple of litres of sports drink that contain some fructose. So um, is that what you're seeing as well in terms of you know day-to-day, they may not have any issues because their overall fructose intake on a day-to-day basis isn't that big? But when they start popping, you know, five, six, seven gels and, you know, a couple of litres of sports strength that's all got fructose in it, all of a sudden their mm. fructose load is just going through the roof mm. compared to what they have on a day-to-day basis. And so that's potentially bringing on the symptoms.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it could be that. And it could also be um, sometimes the changes that they do in their lead-in diet. Because as we know, for endurance and ultra-endurance athletes, one of the strategies we can tend to do is um, increase the carbohydrate intake. So do that typical carbohydrate loading, um, which has found to be, we've had, you know, an episode already on carbohydrate loading, and we know it can be effective for um, particularly endurance performance. Um, but obviously when we do that, we, a significant increase is fructans um and then also yeah possibly you know maybe the honey that we're adding in extra um just to get that that um carbohydrate intake up Mm.
1: um so the traditional you know sort of big pasta meals lots of bread lots of pasta
0: onion garlic when we have the pasta exactly
1: yeah yep yep Yep. Yep. yeah so yeah not not uncommon okay and that probably is a nice segue into the research that you then did when you um came back to Monash Uni to do your honours uh, a few years ago, I think it's 2018, is that right? Yes. Yep. yep. Um, you, so you then did a study that was, so instead of looking at the FODMAP content of what people were having in terms of gels and bars and things during exercise, you were looking at what they were doing in the lead up to exercise as you were just talking about there. So do you want to talk a little bit about, I guess, the background to, to why that study came about and, and what what specifically you were looking at?
0: yeah yeah so that study came about because i guess a number of reasons there had been some research already done um but that- Um, some of the methods i i I think we we saw could perhaps be improved in terms of we wanted to assess you know things like gut symptoms in real time versus what was done in previous studies was retrospectively um and that's not a great indicator of um you know of, of gut of what's impacting on gut symptoms because often when we experience symptoms it, it can be like there and then like 15 minutes later it can change or even within 5-10 minutes and the severity can change quite significantly as well um, so we wanted to measure symptoms in real time. We also wanted to have a much more comprehensive look at um, well, w- what's actually also happening in terms of um, our gut health, in terms of you know um, gut injury markers um, and um, and so and and malabsorption. Um, so basically and and we also thought okay well some of the studies prior they were looking at much longer term um, dietary changes so um, you know they were looking at things like six days of a low FODMAP diet leading into exercise and the lab that we work in Alan Monash Uni, there was actually already some um, evidence kind of building up that potentially 24 hours may be um, sufficient enough um, but it hadn't been, um, you know, done in a, to a high quality level. Um, so, so that's kind of what led us to implement a 24-hour dietary approach versus longer than that. Um, and we're wanting to, imp- to impact on an athlete's, um, I guess, living um, as small as possible. Um, so we don't want to make big changes for them if we don't have to. Um, So we did 24 hours um, and basically we did a double-blinded randomised control trial. So what that means is all of our participants um, did both diets, um, both trials. So they followed a high FODMAP diet for 24 hours before exertional stress. And then a week later, um, they followed a low FODMAP diet 24 hours before exertional stress. And the exertional stress was the same. It was exercising for two hours at 60% of the VO2 max because that's kind of meant to be a similar intensity to at least ultra-endurance runners. And it was in 35-degree heat. And you're like, man, you guys are mean. Why are you putting them in 35-degree heat? Um, And we put them in that particular exercise stress um, environment that – would kind of happen to, to an ultra endurance athlete. You know, we can't exercise an ultra endurance athlete for 11 hours in the lab. We would not be able to recruit them. As you've already seen, it's hard enough to recruit people for five hours running. Um, so we know that in this particular exercise environment, we, we've we already seen in our lab that we can get significant changes to, um, to the gut in terms of, you know, injury and symptoms. So we needed to make sure the the exercise was significant enough. Um, so basically, that's what we did. We had people running mm. for for um, for a couple of hours. Um, they had low fodmap before or high fodmap before, and then the breakfast, the pre-event meal, was either low or high fodmap depending on the trial they were in. And then post exercise, um, we gave them either a high fodmap or a low fodmap recovery beverage as well. We took bloods um, and we took thermoreg, you know, and physiological yeah. markers um, and obviously gut symptoms. Um, so that was, that was the study. Um, and um, what we found from that study, um, and I should say the athletes that we had, they had no kind of typical day-to-day symptoms. There was no diagnosed gut conditions, but they may have experienced symptoms when they were exercising. And that's the type of people we were wanting. Um, And so what we found with that study is that a low FODMAP diet helped reduce the severity of their gut symptoms. The incidence of symptoms was still high in both trials. So it was still high in low FODMAP and in um, high FODMAP diet, but the severity of those symptoms was much more, significantly reduced on a low FODMAP diet um, but then on the other end which we were really surprised about was we actually found that um, a low FODMAP diet um, we actually had um more substantial injury um to to the lining of our gut compared to on a high FODMAP diet but again There was substantial injury in both diets, but it just appeared to be more significant on a low FODMAP diet.
1: Mm. Yep. Okay, so we'll hold that thought and come back to it for a sec. But I think one thing you said there that was really important, you know, you're talking about the exercise stress and that you made them run for two hours and you made it really hot to try and make that sort of severe stress on the gut to, Um, induce those kind of symptoms and and I guess that was one of the issues with the previous research is that while they had done the low FODMAP diet bit of it just fine the exercise wasn't as strenuous in terms of the length or the heat Um, so what they found in that is it might have relieved day-to-day symptoms for those who had them but it didn't relieve the exercise symptoms because the exercise wasn't severe enough to cause symptoms in the first place in anyone
0: Definitely so yeah, from. you've got to
1: you've got to make it hard enough to develop symptoms to show then a reduction in symptoms compared to the other condition. Um, exactly. Because if you don't show symptoms in anyone, then you can't tell if it's the diet or the exercise that's the problem.
0: Exactly, and they also didn't find um, a change in um, injury to the intestine, and again, just because the exercise stress wasn't significant enough.
1: Mm. And and so what you've seen here in in your study is that, um, and and we knew this because previous studies that had used the same protocol, but looking at, not at FODMAPs, but at other things had shown that if you exercise in that environment for two hours, 60% of VO2, max 35 degrees, you are going to get injury to the gut in the majority of people, and you are going to get symptoms um, in a substantial number of people as well
0: exactly and similar to what is experienced in ultra endurance and and certain Mm. endurance events
1: so the heat basically just speeds up the process yep yep cool um okay so let's come back to that kind of paradox now about you know low fodmap reduced the symptoms but increased the amount of injury that occurred to the the lining of Mm. the gut Mm. what's going on there
0: (laughs) i know what is going on hey um yeah it's um it's a it's a tough one to answer really clearly and to not get too (laughs) sciencey um and so I, i guess i'll forgive the listeners if they kind of get lost in in my explanation and alan's always great at explaining things a bit better than than what i can sometimes but basically what's happening is um with a with a high fodmap diet it um, it, it has what we call a, a high um, osmotic and um, ferm- fermentative load um, to the gut. So basically what that means is FODMAPs, you know, they aren't absorbed all that well or they're absorbed really slowly. And what that can do is encourage, you know, kind of fluid into the lumen of the gut um, can, can influence more pressure in the gut. Um, than what a a low FODMAP diet can. Um, Also with a high FODMAP diet, we don't generally absorb all of those FODMAPs um, in anyone. Um, And so what that can do is um, just mean that those nutrients can be in the lumen, um, in the gut for a lot longer period of time than what a low FODMAP diet will have. And so what we think then is that that can actually be good and protective to the gut um, because um, basically then we've got more carbohydrates kind of sticking around in the gut. um, And what happens is when the body then kind of breaks that down, it produces nitric oxide, which can actually um, dilate um, kind of the villi and stuff around um, around our, our gut. Um, So um, it can encourage more blood flow to the gut. Um, Whereas normally when we're exercising, we're getting blood flow going away from the gut. So what actually happens when we exercise, we get less blood flow to the gut and that actually can encourage some injury to the gut. Whereas if we consume a high FODMAP diet, um, we potentially can sort of try and reverse or minimise that um, and, um, and, and by having more pressure, I guess, in the gut, um, we, can, we can potentially encourage more blood flow to that area. So that's kind of one, one thought that, that may be um, involved in when we have a high FODMAP diet um, of why it could be protective. The other thought has got to do with um, FODMAPs are prebiotic, um, and so what that means is, again, because we don't naturally absorb them that well, they more likely end up in the large intestine. And we naturally have bacteria in the large intestine. The bacteria break down the FODMAPs and some of those byproducts that it produces when it's breaking it down are what we call short chain fatty acids and what we know with these short chain fatty acids the particular ones that are produced is they can actually be protective to the gut and and really good and healthy for the gut Um, so potentially a high FODMAP diet may be um, protective to the gut because of its prebiotic effect and also because it may help encourage more blood flow um, to the gut. So, yeah. Do you want to kind of maybe make that even simpler than what I've said, Alan, or is that an okay <laughs> effort?
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll attempt to. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of different things going on here. And I think with, with the short-chain fatty acids, would that be more of a, a long-term effect in terms of whether you have a high or a low FODMAP diet for days or weeks rather than hours?
0: Um, well, we, we saw, we've seen just in our 24 hour approach, um, that that can be enough to, to change the amount of short chain fatty acids. Okay.
1: Yep. yep. Cool. Okay. So going back to that blood flow side of things. So this is probably a critical part of the design of your study mm-hmm. in that Um, you had either the high or the low FODMAP diet leading into the exercise, but during the exercise itself, they didn't consume any food.
0: Mm, No. They only had
1: water, plain water. Yep. And so... Uh, and this comes back to a previous study from a previous PhD student who came through the lab at Monash, and Snipe, who's now at Deakin University. So she showed in one of her studies that if you consume carbohydrate during exercise, as opposed to having just plain water, that that stimulates, well, we think stimulates blood flow to the gut, but it certainly reduces that damage. And so I guess what you're saying here is in your case, you're not consuming that carbohydrate during exercise. So there's nothing coming in during, but because of some of that FODMAPs because that stuff's not digested down and absorbed well some of it's still hanging around while the exercise is going on from what you've eaten in the 24 hours before Mm. and because it's still there it's stimulating that blood flow back to the gut in the same way that consuming carbohydrate during exercise could have the same effect potentially Um, and so either way you're getting that blood flow to the gut which is being protective
0: right on (laughs) <laughs> Why didn't I just say that, eh? <laughs> there
1: you go. Um, and so that's potentially, I guess, where that you know the best of both worlds comes in. Potentially, that you've got um, you know the low FODMAP diet beforehand reduces the symptoms. That's great. But if you need to protect the gut from damage, which is a good thing, um, that could be as simple as just then consuming carbohydrate, and it doesn't have to be FODMAP-containing carbohydrate. Any carbohydrate during exercise itself mm. um, to maintain that blood flow. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it too.
0: Exactly. Yep. 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 Definitely. Cool.
1: And that, that may not help in terms of the short-chain fatty acids, but it would help in terms of the, Helping the blood flow the to blood the gut. Flow. Yep.
0: Exactly yeah. right.
1: Okay. Um, and there hasn't really been any follow-up research on that, has there?
0: No. No, there hasn't. Um, there's, yeah, there's still some research that, you know, definitely can be done in this area, um, but I'd try and encourage the research to be done more in um, the lab where we can control things versus right now in in the field um, yeah
1: yep yep cool okay um, so, Let's think a bit more practically now. So you're thinking about eating and drinking the day before a big training session, if you're trying to fuel up for that session, as we spoke about with uh, Dr. Sam Impey back in episode 2A, or uh, before a race in terms of, you know, potentially carbohydrate loading, as we spoke to Dr. Jose Areta about in, I think it was 9A. Um, so I guess what are the implications of this you know, low FODMAP approach that the listeners may find useful? I mean, I guess the one we talked about already is thinking about maybe the wheat products and, and converting those to other forms of carbohydrates, so maybe having rice instead of pasta, for example, mm-hmm. um, in that that lead up to exercise. So you're still getting the carbs, you're just not getting any of those FODMAPs along with it. What are some of the other sort of practical things that you would often do with athletes to? Uh, try and reduce that fodmap load down while still sort of preparing, quote unquote, optimally for their event.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, normally I'd just switch the the breads, so because um, you know that's kind of can be a really significant one for particularly pre. Um, Event like it's just easy to digest for people. So um, again, depending on the individual, I'd either just switch them to like a sourdough bread because typically that can be low FODMAP. But if we need to be a bit more specific, then there's certain breads that actually now will have on their label low FODMAP. Um, So then I'd I'd get that. Um, And they're quite easily obtained from a huge variety of, of supermarkets Australia wide. Um, overseas, again, it just depends where people are overseas um, in how easy those items are to get. Um, and then in terms of pasta, again, if they, if they love their pasta and, you know, like often pasta bog can be in a really important kind of traditional meal that people will have before an event, then it's not... The old
1: pasta party.
0: Pasta party, yeah. It's not saying you can't have a pasta party, but it's just changing the type of pasta that they have um, and generally, I'd then switch that to a gluten-free um, pa- pasta, just certain spelt pastas. We don't always know if they're low FODMAP. Um, and so gluten-free
1: pasta party.
0: Gluten-free pasta party. But I will also say that there's certain gluten-free pastas that are absolutely horrible, disgusting. And so don't think that just because you have one gluten-free pasta and haven't had a good experience with it, that that's all the gluten-free pastas. If you're not too sure on which ones, um, maybe send me a message and I can let you know. I don't want to be biased to anyone here and then get phone calls that, hey, you told me my pasta's crap. Um, let, let me know if, you, <laughs> if you're a bit unsure of what type of gluten-free pasta. But
1: You're a bit of a gluten-free pasta connoisseur, Steph.
0: I know my gluten-free pasta as well. Yes, yes. Um, I, I have an Italian stepdad, so he had to—he has to eat some some gluten-free pasta with us. So I have to make sure it's it's good. Um, so yeah, they can do that. Um, other things aren't obviously onion can be a significant one. I'll often just telling me that just a type of pasta sauce that they can get that's low fodmap again really easily they're labelled at the supermarket low fodmap, Um, use garlic-infused olive oil, um, use the green part of spring onion instead of, you know, onion itself. And then in terms of like, uh, you know, fruits, you know, bananas generally are okay. Some, you know, bananas might be a bit higher. But again, it depends like how much we're reducing and just reducing total amount maybe maybe enough and then it would be like lactose-free milk you know lactose-free yogurt um, they would be some some typical changes um, and then and then it's about okay well if i need to change it for the during exercise then it's about looking at the products that they're currently using so whether this be sports drinks gels or lollies and then having a look at the actual ingredients and some keywords that I'm going to be looking for, particularly in gels, is if, if fructose is there and if it's in a high amount. Um, you know, usually if it's in the first ingredients, it's in a high amount. Um, and then looking at bars, particularly bars for athletes. What can be really common in bars is um, some of the bars are made with um, often dried fruit and nuts um and so being mindful that that can be high in FODMAP so um there there are easy alternatives in terms of gels and lollies um and bars um do you want me to say some of them or should we leave that for our listeners to kind of investigate
1: well I guess you're looking for the ones that are primarily maltodextrin and glucose based aren't you
0: it, exactly, exactly, so look for that in in terms of the ingredients you generally don't need to understand numbers um like there's no you know they're not going to be hidden in terms of numbers um so yeah looking for glucose and and multidextrin um and then looking for the main ingredients not to be dates nuts and and um and fruit
1: mm, yep which are often yep. common in particularly in terms of their bake your own or diy type products
0: super common and also i should say also looking for them not to have the polyols like xylitol mannitol
1: um those are more the commercial bars potentially exactly right okay um all right so in terms of i guess who you would recommend that approach to so obviously you've got probably a couple or three different groups of people there's The runners, cyclists and triathletes that have day-to-day gut issues, whether they have them during Mm. exercise or not. There's Mm. the runners, cyclists and triathletes who are fine on a day-to-day basis, but then are having gut issues during exercise exclusively. And then you've Mm. got the ones that don't have either problem, but are worried that one day it might happen to them. So thinking about Mm. those three groups, who would you recommend this kind of approach for? Would you recommend it for everyone or just the specific Mm. groups that have have issues?
0: Yeah. Yep. Um, It's a a good question Um, uh, and it's a tricky one. I I mean, ideally, as you and I know, and hopefully some of our listeners know in in our previous episode where we explained the reasoning behind why we have gut symptoms, we know that the reason why we may experience gut symptoms, at least during exercise, is multifactorial. There can be lots of different reasons and we don't know, you know, which one's the reason for a particular individual and it can be a combination of those. Um, So if we were in the ideal world and they could come to our lab and we could test them, fantastic. We'd much probably prefer that way so we can kind of get an idea of, you know, what is the main issue for why these people are getting those symptoms if we can't do that um and you know we have a look at their diet and we find that hey they actually do have a diet that is really high in FODMAPs well let's just see if we do and can try this out if it does have an effect on their symptoms we're only going to do it for a short term it's going to be 24 hours where we're going to go low FODMAP Lead in diet and then assess their symptom response. Um, well, then I think that's it's 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 okay, right? Because we're not doing it for a long period of time. Um, it's it's you know we're gonna give them replacements um, and then we're gonna assess their symptom response. And maybe we have to do that over a few a few sessions. Um, so then the athletes that I tend to look at that for that's I guess your during exercise example that I just gave you. Um, so if they're experiencing symptoms during exercise, um, if they haven't had any symptoms, but they're a bit conscious of it, um, I'd say if they're entering into a ultra endurance event, then I would say yes, it is potentially worthwhile in doing that because, We know in ultra endurance exercise, our gut isn't functioning as well. It isn't digesting and absorbing as well. So I just wanna really just try and minimise the risk of of increasing severity of symptoms. And again, I think it's only 24 hours before, um, let's see if it is worthwhile. Again, you work with the athlete to see how much of an impact that's going to have, where are they, how logistically possible is that, and maybe it's just dialing down the threshold so it's not as severe. Um, The athlete that has symptoms on a day-to-day basis, um, well, then I'd say, hey, if they've got the symptoms on a day-to-day basis, it's kind of like functional gut symptoms to me then if they're having it daily. So then my question is, well, how much is it impacting on the quality of life and if it's to a reasonable level um, well then yeah I would trial a low FODMAP diet um, but I would then do that approach more for a two-week period because it's affecting them more on a day-to-day and then what I do is assess symptom response. Okay if we get a symptom improvement then I'd do that reintroduction phase of FODMAPs. And again, strategically not airy-fairy because that's not gonna get us anywhere. Um, If I've trialed that approach, we get no symptom response. They wanna trial it again for two weeks, we can do that. But then if no symptom response, it's not FODMAPs that are triggering their symptoms. There's a whole range of other things that can trigger symptoms. And one that's super common, particularly right now in COVID times, is stress and anxiety. Um, So then it may be that we need to look more at that or there's something else that we need to look at.
1: Or go see your GP.
0: Totally always go see the GP first to get any medical um, stuff sorted out.
1: Cool. So I guess we've got a situation here where we've got uh, a particular pattern of eating in terms of things that we're going to potentially exclude or substitute, uh, but it can be used in different ways. So it's used quite differently for the people with day-to-day gut issues uh, as opposed to people that are using it specifically as a one-off strategy leading into you know big training sessions or, or race where you've got a significant exercise stress that might cause gut issues. Um, quite a different scenario
0: yeah yeah and like we've said we know that FODMAPs can be good for gut health can be protective to the gut Um, so we only want to do it short term and we only want to do it when it's needed and we want to try and reintroduce as much as we can in terms of FODMAPs um, if we can Um, and I guess the other sort of significant thing that we found in our research as well is that um, we also looked at that post-exercise scenario for people with symptoms. Um, And we know that that gut symptoms can be quite high in the post-exercise period. Um, And so again, in that instance, it may be worthwhile just in the um, post-exercise period, having and consuming low FODMAP um, uh nutrition um just to help um when they've already got gut symptoms coming um go low fodmap just to help settle symptoms and so they can get something in nice small and frequent and then when they're starting to feel better then maybe that's when they can introduce some more um fodmaps in their diet
1: yep sounds good All right, well, I think that's a pretty good summary of, of where things are at in terms of FODMAPs and, and exercise specifically. So we've got one thing left to do, Steph. Mm-hmm. Now I know we've done the bonus round with you, but we're back with a new bonus round.
0: <laughs> this is scary, Alan, this is scary.
1: <laughs> and Find out even more about you, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. All right, it's gonna be a bit of a quicker one tonight or today, yeah. whenever you're listening. Uh, but our first question, The Olympics and Paralympics obviously wrapped up a few weeks ago. We had the pleasure of speaking to a few people in the lead-up to those events. Uh, We spoke to Alistair Donohoe in our last episode while the opening ceremony of the Paralympics (laughs) was going on. Um, And we've got a couple of guests coming up that have recently returned from the Olympics and Paralympics. But I want to know from you, what was your favourite moment? It's
0: a hard one. Um, I I think I'd start with it saying that all of the athletes, obviously, were bloody awesome um, to get through what's been a really challenging lead up um, and to represent the country. So, like, amazing job to everyone that um, participated. But my standout moment is actually Alistair um, Donohoe. Um, so his road race where he unfortunately got knocked down quite hard a couple of times um, and frig when I saw him get knocked down and then I saw how far they got ahead of him I was like shit what's he gonna do and he just straight away obviously got back on his bike and caught up like something really good um but I just thought just outstanding in terms of um yeah his attitude to it um and he just kept fighting um which I think is testament to his to his character um, and then, obviously, as we know, unfortunately, he lost, um, you know, a really close mate in the lead up to those games, and he just showed really exceptional and, and courageous performances. I think so. He's yeah, definitely a standout, and I can just still picture everything that that happened for him. So, mm.
1: Mm. yep. awesome. I might just add mine in mm. here because uh, I'm probably not gonna be bonus rounded anytime soon. Um, <laughs> For me, it was the the two high-jump events at the Olympics, actually. Oh, so yes. my wife was actually a high-jumper yep. um, back in the day. And so, you know, whenever the Olympic high-jump events come around, we're always very interested to watch them. Um, and obviously the men's event where they shared the gold medal was was amazing. That was. Uh, and then in the women's event, um, just seeing the performance of the two Australians yep. um, was was incredible mm. Um, mm. And, and the way that one played out as well. So they were both long but really enthralling events and obviously you know particularly with the men's event quite an incredible finish it it.
0: was wasn't it yeah that was yeah Mm. that was quite teary yep
1: yeah awesome um okay next question you've just moved house we talked a bit about that at the start what's the best thing about your new place
0: well i kind of got told that i need to say the garage gym um which my flatmate kate's been in your ear (laughs) has set up amazingly um but To be honest, I think the winning thing for me was to have a bit of a backyard for my Cavoodle Cooper. Um, Yeah, just because I know how important it is to to have, uh, you know, outside for him. And um, then for myself and Cooper, just we're not far from Chelsworth Park, which is one of my favourite running trails here in in Melbourne. Um, So, yeah, that's that's a win for, for me.
1: Awesome. And has he worn a trail around the backyard yet?
0: He, no, he hasn't. He gets bloody grotty out there, so I've got to keep an eye on him when he is out there because, he. I mean, even when I take him down to Chelsworth Park, it seems like I have to wash him daily. Um, so, yeah, he just, he absolutely loves it. You put him on trails and he'll mm. just, yeah, sprint.
1: Mm. Awesome. All right. Your favourite thing to do during lockdown? <laughs>
0: um again it'd be has to be running with cooper um running in the trails using our 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 gym and then eating um we're we're so close to my new favorite gelato place it's gelato bocca um so you know if gelato bocca want to start sponsoring me just for saying their name on this podcast feel free <laughs>
1: I was going to say sponsor the podcast, not just you. Sponsor the podcast. Where's my gelato?
0: <laughs> but jeez, I reckon like three, three times a week I'll, I'll be up at Gelato Bocca getting something.
1: <laughs> there you go. All right, and final question. The hardest thing you've ever done in terms of exercise?
0: Going to the gym with Kate Gifford. <laughs> she doesn't let me escape. <laughs> or shortcut anything. Um, yeah. No, in all honesty, I would say. Obviously, I'm a I'm a runner. Um, so, Yu Yang's 50k race would was where I can honestly say I pushed myself the hardest.
1: And it's just up and down and up and down at the U's, isn't it? Yeah,
0: it is. It's up and down. Um, and the other thing was we had. Um, the people at the aid station unfortunately tell us the wrong way um, and then they also um, buggered up one of my aid stations. So, yeah, it, 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 was, it was a hard run um, but I actually felt awesome. Um, so that, that would have to be the hardest alongside of trekking Mount Kilimanjaro just on that last day. The, um, how bloody cold it was and to, to try and trek up there was, was bloody tough.
1: Okay, that's better. The other one, you said you felt great, and I asked you the hardest thing you've ever done exercise-wise.
0: Well, <laughs> was hard because I pushed myself. It sounds like a great day out.
1: Uh, anyway. <laughs> All right, well, that brings us to the conclusion of today's episode of The Long Munch. Uh, as always, if you've got a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can feel free to hit us up on social media, at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Uh, but as always, Steph, we've got our B episode coming up next week mm. on the same topic. Who have we got to speak to for our B episode for this one?
0: Yeah, we have the um, one and only Scotty Hawker. Um, so he's a elite ultra endurance runner. Um, and um, yeah, was lucky enough to get to work with him. Um basically approached um, approached me when I was actually doing private practice back in Adelaide um, just because his races were, were ending um, with gut symptoms. So we're gonna get Scotty on um, because part of the intervention we did with him was looking at FODMAPs. Um, so yep. I think, yeah, he's just gonna be a really good kind of case study for us.
1: Mm. Yep. Uh, And for those, uh, if you follow ultra running, Scotty came second just recently in the the CCC at the uh, UTMB Mountain Festival. So yeah, big prestigious 100k race through the French Alps on the UTMB weekend. So yeah, fantastic result for Scotty. And we'll chat to him a a bit about that as well.
0: Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Looking forward to that one. He's over in Spain. So yeah, lucky enough to spare us some time while he's over there.
1: Exactly right. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you all found that useful and enjoyable. Hit up Steph if you have questions about specific products uh, or you just want to try and jump on the gelato bandwagon. <laughs> and um, yeah, we'll speak to everyone next week.
0: All right. Awesome. Thanks, everyone.